Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is A Lot To Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. Without further ado, here's Austin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I have no idea what time it is because it is a podcast and people listen to podcasts whenever they listen to podcasts. They might be sitting on the side of the Hudson River in beautiful Beacon, New York with famed contemporary artist Ron English. Ron, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. We are in Ron's lovely home upon a bluff in Beacon, New York, overlooking the Hudson River. And I didn't even think I was going to start about that. But uh, the Hudson River School, right? The, all, the, the, the Thomas Coles of the world. What is it about the Hudson? Um, I don't know, but um, it's very beautiful up here. Um, if you're from somewhere else, it probably seems doubly beautiful. Uh, I remember like maybe the first week or so I was up here, my kid was playing soccer, and there was a spectacular sunset in the mountains, and everybody here was kind of ignoring it, watching the soccer game. And I thought, man, you guys should just turn around for a minute. But uh, <laughs> hey, you, I guess you can get used to anything, even beauty, right? That's the that's the eye. That's the eye of the artist. Um, Go on Ron's Instagram. We're going to start this right off with that. Ron, what is your Instagram? Uh, Ron English Art. Go to Ron English Art right now. Take a couple seconds. Flip through some of the stuff so you guys are grounded on what we're about to discuss. Because Ron is a consummate pop culture artist, but do you like the term pop culture artist? Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, as long as you call me an artist, I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> Anything else you throw in there. Street artist. <laughs> Street artist, pop artist, culture. Bad artist, yeah. But artist is an interesting thing because it's kind of like a compliment. Like if, if you were a plumber and I said, yeah, he's a plumber, but he's really an artist. You know, that's, that's a high compliment. So the name of your profession is actually a compliment. Right. And to have, yeah, artist is sort of an application to other careers like oh no yeah he's an electrician but he is an artist at it but you are just an artist not many people can say that where where, where what's the origin of just what's the what's actually quite a lot of people seem to be able to say that so oh well yeah. seem to be able if to you say that hold a crayon in your hand and hang out at a at a, a cafe in brooklyn you're an artist right? <laughs> <laughs> when was the when was the exact moment where you're like oh i am now Ron English, the artist, not Ron English, the aspiring artist, not Ron English. Is it a mindset? Is it there's a clear demarcation? Was there, I sold that one piece and that's what made it? Um, yeah, I think I just liked it a lot and I, I kind of was shy. So it was a thing to retreat into. You'll find probably most artists you talk to started off pretty shy and they needed, needed to express themselves in some way. But I think you do something like if I was a professional clown, I would think about all the things that kind of led me to that. Oh, I remember I loved Lon Chaney and I loved makeup and, and I remember going to the circus and, you know, and, and seeing the sideshows and, you know, being intrigued by the whole mystery of everything. And, you know, I would tell a narrative that told all these things that led me to being a clown. So I think no matter what you are, you kind of go back to your life and find things that kind of led you in that direction. Well, you've got a little bit of circus in you. Yeah. Uh, you've got a little bit of three wings ring circus. We'll post some photos on Twitter and Instagram of uh, Ron's home studio because it's full of bright vibrancy and just 
craziness. And I love it. I love it. I love it to death. Uh, what was your sideshow? What was your Lon Chaney? What was your makeup artist that you saw as a young adult or a child that drove you into the direction towards this sort of uh, ethos? Well, I, I liked comic books. I liked art. I liked toys. Um, I think probably what actually drove me is just being rewarded for the behavior. So, um, like when all the cousins would come over, I would we would get under my grandmother's table and I would draw them pictures. So, so it was something I got rewarded for. And I think that's a lot of people's stories. If you do something early in life and you get a lot of acclamation for it, then you kind of kind of gravitate towards it. So you're encouraging our children to act up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I drew on my my sister's wall and and then I blamed it on her, but. Unfortunately, I used words, and she was only two. <laughs> and I'm sure your parents saw it and said, that's way too good for the two-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I couldn't sort out at the time. Like, how'd they know that uh, she didn't do it, and I did it? I wasn't that bright, you know? Right, right. But uh, clearly, there was something... She was, like, five years younger than me, so... What informs your art? Because you are consuming pop culture and reforming it and representing it, not representing it, but representing it in, you're consuming it at a breakneck pace. Like, where does it all come from? Are you on the internet all the time? Are you on the TV all the time? Uh, where, where, where are you getting all of your incredibly well-informed takes? Um, you know, maybe it started when I was a kid and um, my mom wanted to show me how to draw. So she showed me how to draw like Charlie Brown and Snoopy. And then, you know, then it was exciting, but you can't really, you know, you're not supposed to draw this. You're supposed to draw your own thing. And and it's kind of illegal to, you know, draw it or whatever and present it. So uh, so kind of I think it stuck in my mind that, you know, I wanted to make art about what it's like to be alive now. And we're living in this huge media culture and we're, we're looking at media at 2410. So, like, what's it like to be a person that's absorbing this media? Because you're not, you're not going to remember it the right way or you're not going to take it the way it was intended. So it's kind of like I, I create, like, the unintentional uh, aftermath of what it's like to absorb all this information. Okay. I think I get it. <laughs> you're, yeah, okay. So you're you're consuming, and then you're you're sort of presenting towards the 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 viewer their sort of misconceived memory of what these things are. Like the uh, I love the uh, what's the name of your bloated Tony the Tiger? Oh, Fat Tony. Fat Tony. <laughs> yeah. Duh, Fat Tony. But so we, some of that kind of stuff is just easy because you know you you get presented this stuff when you're a kid. It's a cartoon. It's it's it has a prize in the in the cereal, and you love the cereal. And later, it has a lot of ill effects on your life. And then you kind of think, well, what they have all these I iconic characters that are presenting the you know they're they're cartoons, so they're not going to get fat or they're not going to get old. But what would it be like if they actually were you know? semi-human and, and had to eat the cereal and what would they end up looking like and what would their life be like and so, you're ronald mcdonald same right. way what would happen if ronald mcdonald the ever young i believe he's been shelved by mcdonald's i haven't seen him around in yeah, a he's, while he's still around, he's still, around. <laughs> he's still pretty healthy um but he's still healthy but uh but i think you know with yeah with the marble man um you know they said you have to smoke the cigarettes and i think everybody at the company had to smoke the cigarettes but we want you to be seen in public you're famous you're the marble man um, we want you to always be smoking our cigarettes, you know, and uh, and then he got emphysema and he had to get an iron lung. And I think that maybe McDonald's kind of came after that and thought maybe we probably shouldn't have our, our guy eating the food, you know, because it could turn out badly. <laughs> yeah. so they probably have in his contract he can't eat there. <laughs> right, right. And and he, Tony the Tiger, obviously, he, that doesn't he doesn't have to deal with that because he never grows old and he's always great. Uh, it, it, it's like uh, beer commercials. They pop the beer, 
they give each other cheers, but not once will that beer ever touch your lips on a t- on a beer commercial, right? I don't think I've ever seen Ronald McDonald be like, yum, 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 here's, it's always fun, 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 come in here, kids. And I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen Ronald McDonald take a bite out of a double quarter pounder. No, and I've never, um, I've never seen a beer advertised as like, you know, you'll probably have less of a hangover drinking this beer. You know, we're one of the best for the hangover thing, you know, or, or even saying, you know, these, this beer makes great hangovers <laughs> and embarrassing moments. <laughs> it's, yeah, this is, this is the fun for right now, not the fun for, for right later. Wouldn't it be interesting if you could have the hangover first? I wonder if you'd even drink, you know? I don't really get them, so I'm uh, oh. I'm pretty okay in that. <laughs> I just, how, how do you not get them? Uh, probably genetics, since my parents are right here, and they uh, <laughs> they tipple tipple sometimes. Uh, it looks like it rubbed off on me. Uh, can't say the uh, same for my brothers because their entire lives are hangovers. They won't listen to this, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and I remember talking to my uncle saying, "You know, I just got this hangover, and it lasted a whole day." And they're like, "Huh." Yeah, we have hangovers left three days. <laughs> so. uh, I, I guess I got, I got the uh, genetic code on that one. You go out there and you sort of, you know, you stick it to the man a little bit. Does the man stick it back? Because you are treading on some really, like, I see, I see Disney, I see Fox, I see Warner, I see every major media conglomerate represented in your art. Uh, do they ever slap back at you? Uh, sometimes. I mean, you, we, we have lawsuits and, um, but not, 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 not in the ones you think. I mean, McDonald's never did anything. Um, why? I don't know. I can't, I don't ask them. I don't know. <laughs> I don't sit in those meetings. Um, I know that I, that there was, uh, the, the first time that I had done MC Supersize, the, the fat Ronald, whatever for years. And, but he really got famous when he appeared in uh supersize me, the movie, and I thought that movie would probably, you know, get, get a lawsuit from McDonald's. But the year before, there was an, another movie, um, and it was about a lawsuit in England where it didn't really turn out that well. Um, basically, they, you know, they, they, they this, these young uh, agitators were handing out flyers that, that said all these derogatory things about McDonald's that all happened to be true. But um, they took them to court, and I think the court case didn't. The court case really didn't play out the way they they had intended McDonald's, and so they, they probably thought it's better just to, you know, how many billboards can this guy really do? You know, I mean, it's better just to leave this stuff alone instead of blowing it up into something bigger. The uh, the Streisand effect, uh, where you call attention to something that you wanted to keep secret, and thus the internet being full of miscreants and probably white supremacists uh, blow it out of the water with like Barbara Streisand wanted to hide the location of her house from like paparazzi so she filed like some privacy claim and of course then now the address of her house is published because she put it in court Uh, it's whenever someone tries to like squelch something like never delete a tweet because the second you delete it it calls to attention that you deleted it well I did I did have um I did have a meeting with uh, one of the guys from one of the big, big billboard companies, and that was just kind of a weird thing because I had been out all night with uh, Shepard Ferry doing billboards, and I was always very open about I do these illegal billboards, and you know, and I was on a morning radio show in uh, L.A. and uh, and uh, you know, even my manager called me and goes, you know, quit implicating yourself in crimes on the radio. <laughs> but I, my my attitude was like, well, they I'm in the phone book, they know me, you know, it's like they could find me if they wanted to. I write my name on the billboard. 
But um, yeah, the guy was in the same building, so he came running up after the radio show and you know grabbed me, and you know, so I've been looking for you for fifteen years, and it's like, no, you haven't. Yeah, no, you haven't. Because <laughs> um, I'm in the phone book, and I'm not that hard to find. It's like, why don't you tell me what's really going on? And he finally said, look, you know, I take my um, clients to see a billboard, and then your stupid stuff's on there, and it's embarrassing, and I, you know, and even at one point said, look, I'll give you free billboards if you just quit doing it. But the reason I don't come after you is because I don't want the narrative to be this hero of, you know, consumer, consumer culture hero or whatever, you know, we, we took them down and then we were the bad guys. I don't want the narrative where the, we're the bad guys. And, and it just shows you they don't completely control the narrative. They just own all the billboards. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Did you take the free billboards? Um, I said, well, you're going to tell me, you're going to control where they are and you're going to control more importantly what I put on them. And he goes, well, of course. And then like, no, we don't have a deal. So then, it, well, <laughs> yeah. so then it's actually not free. Right. It is not free at all. Yeah. You, you are paying. Well, I think that at one point, you know, I'd done the billboards for years and I, maybe I was doing a little better. So I thought, you know, maybe instead of just laying awake all the time, wondering when they're going to come get me, maybe I could just rent the billboards and then, you know, it would, it would cost me more money than stealing them. But at the same time, I could probably sleep at night, you know, and not wonder if I'm going to get arrested. But then I kind of found out, like contacting the billboard companies, that they really don't accept a lot of uh, concepts. You know, like they said, well, you can support the war, but you can't protest the war. You can support marriage, but you can't support ma- gay marriage. Or do you know what I mean? There was they have they're very strict in what right. you can say on their billboards. Right. Like, I can't make fun of McDonald's on their billboard, you know, because they take billions of dollars worth of advertising from them, and so I'm going to do three billboards and. Yeah, it's just and I didn't realize how restrictive they actually were. People think you can just rent a billboard and say whatever you want, but that's not the case. You can say kind of commercial speech, or you can have a right wing uh, agenda, and if it's because it matches with their agenda, then you can do that. But you can't have a left wing agenda. Yeah, there was a famous case, and I wish I remembered it better. But um, these they uh, it, they were this group got together, wanted to protest the war, um, the first Gulf War, and they took out a huge ad on Times Square, and I think they didn't read the fine print, but they, they rounded up a million dollars, bought this billboard that said stop the war or whatever, and uh, and then they wouldn't put the billboard up, and then the, and then they wouldn't give them their money back. And they said, well, you should read your contract because it says we're allowed to censor you, and if we decide, you know, you've paid for this billboard and you want to put up this billboard, and uh, we decide we don't like what you're saying, then we're going to nix it, but we don't have to give you your money back. You know, so it was a weird case. Yeah, I remember in Times Square... Um We've had a couple couple Gulf Wars now. I remember in Times Square, well, I remember in the Vietnam War, John and Yoko put up a War is Over. And in the first Gulf War in Times Square, they put up a War is Over billboard. Uh, and uh, and and Yoko put up uh, in the second Gulf War, I remember that in Times Square, a War is Over billboard too. Dead center, like 49th or 50th Street. wonder how she got away with it. I don't know. I don't. I don't know her. So no, no. I mean, that was just a wondering out loud. Maybe that's a favorable billboard company, or maybe that was the realtor of the building owns the ad space, and they were fine with it. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, there's only a couple of billboard companies, though. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, there used to be a lot more. So probably back then there were about twenty, and now there's about two. So. Yeah, CBS Outdoor. Wait, why are we going? Why are we, what are we doing? And we're, we're we're now we're now on a primer of the billboard industry. We're we're now uh, senior marketing agents. For for Viacom Outdoors, <laughs> um, what? Let's bring back to the art. So we've got Mickey Mouse. We've got a fat Mickey. We've got Mickey in the gas mask. What's that? Um, well, it, it's kind of like he's 
breathing the pop culture, so he needs his mask. And his name is uh, Mouse Mass Murphy. So and that's another reason I don't get sued because he's altered thirty percent. He's a parody, and he has a different name. So, <laughs> I, you've really thought this through, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, I could have uh, a second career as a copyright attorney, right? Right, right. Because you're figuring out. Oh, so you said altered thirty percent, different name. And it's parody. What are the 30% alterations that you've uh, marked? Well, I guess it's just the, the gas mask is, deforms his whole face into something else. All right. And that's a good 30% of a mouse. Yeah. And, and interestingly, um, I think the Israelis made a gas mask for kids that looked like Mickey Mouse. Because it kind of looks like Mickey Mouse, a gas mask. But that way, when they were getting air raids, they could... The, it didn't freak the kids out as much as like, oh, we're all going to dress like Mickey instead of like, we're all going to, we're going to, we're all going to die. Gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> or we're not going to die because we're going to wear these masks. Right? right. But I think it made it more like a game for them that it looked like Mickey Mouse. So that's actually good. Cause there was something I wanted to talk about a couple years back. I went to uh, your Guernica opening across the street from the uh, Whitney in Soho. And Guernica is one of my favorite paintings of all time. Uh, and it's one of the most important paintings of all time. I know this, you know this, but for our listeners, let's talk about Guernica first, what it means to us, and then let's talk about Guernica's influence in the wider scope of things, and let's talk about how you turn Guernica on its head. Um, I, I don't remember first, the first time I ever saw Guernica, because I've never seen the real one, but I've definitely seen the one, the replication and the United Nations, and I've seen it in my art history books. I don't remember the first time I've seen it, but I remember every time I see it. Hmm. You know what I mean? It always it always punches. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about what Guer- tell us a little bit about the history of Guernica, if you know, uh, and what it sort of means to you. Well, he painted it for the uh, Pablo uh, Picasso, by yeah, the way, yeah, painted the, Guernica. In case you're Spanish pavilion, but um, so it was almost, I guess, a commission. And I think he wanted to use that moment to make a statement. Um, you know, to me, it was kind of like I, it was like Ring Around the Rosie, where it's like it, it's already a degree of separation from what it's actually talking about because it is cartoon. You know, so it's not like there's this horrific event, and if you took pictures of it, you might be mortified to look at it because you know little kids with their heads blown off or whatever. But um, no, it's already a cartoon, so it's already a, a, there's a distancing from it, which is something I think humans have to do. You can't, you can't take take on horror on a daily basis. You have to kind of turn it into a kid's song, or you have to take some kind of distance from it, you know. And I think that what I did is just kind of used it as a template because, again, everybody knows it. And this, as soon as you arrange characters in that position, people know that's Guernica. So you have this underlying uh, concept, and then whatever you superimpose on top of it still has that embedded meaning of the original painting. Right. The mother is screaming at the sky, but she's grotesque, a caricature. There's the the uh, debilitated horse who was bombed in the streets, again, screaming at the sky, but it's... It's a gro- it's a grotesque cartoon. You're right. So, but it's so stylistic that you can't forget it. Right. You know, had he made a photorealistic painting of of a bomb blowing up kids, then we wouldn't still be talking about it because it, it can't exist iconically in your head. Right. Way. And in that case, then you just move on to is in essence photography. You've got yeah. you. We've got Napalm Girl. We've right. got the uh, the. Uh, Saigon police chief executing that Viet Cong on the street. We've got those graphic photos. But it's it's probably not that different than what we were talking about with the um, mascots for companies. It's like, you know, it's easier to remember. You know, it's a spokesperson that never dies. It stays the same. 
you know, so the painting stays the same and it's, it's a cartoon. It's easy to remember. It is. And it is, it's sort of the icon of 20th century war. Yeah. And, and I, and it's weird because you can't really tell what's going on. I mean, to me, it was enlightening to go see it in person and see all the, uh, the sketches because like the, the guy on the far right, or maybe it's a woman, I can't tell. I think maybe it's a woman, but it's hard to tell like what's going on with her. Why does she have tiny little feet? Why are they sticking off to the side? But it, when you watch the progress of him painting it, originally she was falling off a building, off a ladder. Um, then he just painted that stuff out, I, mean, I guess, for the composition. And so it's interesting. Like, the weird stuff, there's just some stray feet sticking out. Where are they coming from? But, you know, watching him paint it and, uh, and change it, I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, you're, you are right. You have – you can't – you can look at Guernica and you can see that it's something terrifying – but you still have to be informed of the actual event, which was the mm-hmm. 1936, uh, the German Condor Legion bombed a rebellious Spanish Civil War town into submission. Uh, modern modern airplanes uh, carpet bombing a civilian population for, if not the first time, the first effective time. And that was what... Uh, that's what uh, Picasso was drawing. But yeah, you have to be informed of that event to understand beyond the terror. We see the terror, but we have to be informed of the event to be beyond the terror. And I guess that sort of circles back to where you are because you have to be informed of Guernica Mm -hmm. to be informed of your, uh, your takes on Guernica. Right. But also I think, you know, for me, it was kind of like, a tradition in folk music is that you just steal a melody. I mean, a melody's for everybody, right? Yeah. And then I'm going to write more contemporary songs about maybe something that's going on right now. And and nobody thought a thing about that because, you know, the idea of ownership was, was different, like, with that art form. And then I think there's a weird thing with... Um, with art, you know, and the idea of ownership and what do you own and what can you just take from somebody else and use? Like a lot of that was in the air and especially like in the 80s when I started painting Guernica, it was like people were sampling and stuff. So t- to me it was interesting, like like now I go to China a lot and they don't they don't think about originality. If I can make a better Rembrandt than Rembrandt, then then it's 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 better. But, you know, an American would say, no, that's a copy. That's, that's not as good, you know, even if it's slightly better, I don't know. But I mean, that it, it, all this stuff's a concept. And we have to buy into the concept of originality or, or this is the – I look like they think that maybe Blue Poles, Jackson Pollock, maybe one of the greatest paintings, one of the greatest moments in Western civilization, you know, a pinnacle moment. I could make that painting or I could make something so similar by using the same paint and the – but it would be considered worthless. Why? Because aesthetically it was considered a height of, of creation. And, and But nobody else can do it. You know, it would be like if, in another world, like if I made a Porsche – you know, and I used all the same parts, and I built it in my backyard, but it's still a Porsche, and it, it, does, it goes just as fast, and but it would have no value, you know, if it was art, because it's like, well, it's not an original, you know, but it's it's a copy that's exactly the same, and it does all the functions exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, but, but that's something that that's that's a prejudice that exists inside the art world that doesn't exist necessarily outside the art world. So I, I love like concepts of like that. What what is originality? There was a guy in the '80s who just repainted Picasso's, uh, Mike Bidlow, and it was like you didn't look at the painting the same way because, you know, his intentionality behind making that painting still exists because we know Mike Bidlow made that. Picasso didn't make it, even though they look alike. Now, Picasso made it for a certain reason, but Bidlow didn't make it for that same reason, you know. So, you know, the idea of the artist informs the art. The the context of the creation of the art, you can't eradicate from the art. So, and I mean, to me, that's all interesting, you know. It's, it, it, 
one, it's interesting. Two, it pretty much, you know, validates anyone's efforts. You know, if if, if you make the effort and you do, I, I don't see a problem with making a 100% copy of a Van Gogh, yeah, you know? In, in the 80s, they were playing with the idea of in-game art. Like, I, I want the art world to end with me. I want to make the pinnacle of art, and there's nowhere to go. I've intellectually in-gamed at this thing. So, like, by, <laughs> by like somebody like Sherry Levine or Mike, like, I'm, if I just recreate somebody else's art, like, where, where do you grow from this branch? I've, I've just created a branch that you can't grow anything from. But, you know, and... But they've killed the idea of originality, but they haven't because they, they, they're still original even if they copy because, you know, again, the context around it and the way we look at it is different. The act so it's of impossible copy. not to be creative. Right. The act of the copy yeah. is the creative is the creative mind jump from going from I want to create something new to I want to I want to do what someone else did better. And that is that's a that's a logical leap that might not be evident to the viewer, but to the artist, that is the click. That's the right. click. Or I just want to question why that that's a venerated object and I can create the exact same object out of the same materials and it's it's worthless. You know, why why do we think that? You know, so maybe I want to challenge that idea. I don't know. Or conversely, we take the urinal, we turn it on the sideways, we write our mutt on it and now it's worth something, you know? He did it he uh uh, uh he did it sort well, he of did it as a joke. Yeah. But, um then it became a venerated object of art history. So right. it's not a joke anymore. No, and then some some kid came in and tried to smash it or something once. Or one of the replica there's like four or five of them out there that are uh, are Duchamp certified and uh, some kid tried to come and smash it and everyone's like what are you doing and I was like that kid gets it yeah that kid gets it by smashing that venerated object that would be Duchamp would be like right bravo that yeah. kid gets it but of course the art world oh want to talk about the art world <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know that much about the art world. You, are, do you try to stay out of that? No, uh, no. I mean, I know. I understand how it functions and how it works, and it's interesting. It's. Um, I think it was interesting because I'm an art history major. So I, it, I, every time that I studied all these artists from other generations, like especially like the 20th century, it's like. I always wonder who the other artists were because we're only seeing a very small sliver of the pie, you know. Mm -hmm. So, like, yeah, we know who Picasso is, and we know who Matisse is, or. Um, but who are all? The, who else was making art, and what were they making? And actually, a, a very interesting thing happened to me. I lived in the East Village, and uh, I lived in this old house on like Avenue D. And the woman that um, rented me like the basement, and later she actually let, let me rent the whole house. Sweet lady. Um, is it still she, open? She, no, no. <laughs> well, some of the guys bought the house, but um, she had been an artist in the fifties. Um, it kind of didn't work out for her. Um, you know, I think her husband got killed by the crazy people in the neighborhood and just, you know, she couldn't get into the art world, um, maybe because she was a woman and also because she wasn't making abstract expressionism. You know what she was making? She was making Keith Herrings. She was making these bubble-headed boys with no hands and, and like in bubble heads and with different colors and outlined by different colors and interlocking together and doing all the stuff with this imagery. No way. That later became, you know, Keith Herring. Keith Herring you know, and I thought that was quite interesting. But, you know, if we look at it in our history book, we, we think of Helen Frankenthaler or Jackson Pollock or de Kooning. But we don't realize other people were doing completely different things and they were rejected because they were a woman or they were rejected because they weren't making the right kind of art for that moment. Clement Bring Greenberg didn't approve or whatever but you know you know other people are making art and most of it's going to get destroyed because there's no way to preserve it oh she also had one other interesting thing she had a catalog that from a show that she was in um and there was a guy that did an aquarium like oh that, no full, half oh water. come on really 
Did she do it like a Damien Hurst? <laughs> no, no, that would be Jeff Koons. He floated the basketballs. Oh, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so I, he, I didn't let you. Fill the tank half full yeah. with like uh, salt water and then float one or two or three basketballs. I guess maybe it's more expensive. You get three. I don't know. Or, or maybe it's too audacious to have three. It's better to have one. Except the only difference was that this artist had um, put the uh, flotation tanks from the back of your toilet. He had screwed two together and had those floating. But it looked exactly like the Jeff Combs. Right. Half full and everything was just the same. Oh, my God. So you wondered. I wonder if he saw that. You know? Yeah. But I, wor- I worked for another artist once, and we were kind of going through his files and stuff. And he had this kind of – he had about eight paintings that kind of hit it, like in the 80s. And uh, we were going through like a catalog, and all those – Really cool concepts. One of them is a guy's climbing a ladder and then turns back around into another ladder and there's a guy climbing the other way and they kind of see each other. All the stuff he had stolen from the jewelry catalogs. It was somebody else's stuff. You know, if I hadn't went through his files, like, well, here's his source material. He just took, took somebody else's thing and then made it a painting instead of a, a piece of jewelry. Instead of a piece of... There, there it is, you know? Oh, my so, God. Wow. Yeah, that's... But at the same time, it's like, it's weird because sometimes people get mad because you have an idea and then they'll have that idea. But I, I think if, if I have an idea right now, maybe 11 other people in the world are having the same idea at the same time because we've all digested the same information and then we kind of come up with the same idea. And it's it, then whoever gets, you know, gets it out first. Then right. It becomes first idea, first to know? market wins. Oh, it was interesting when the Internet came out. Then I got a lot of, you know, like years into, you know, years later. You know, a lot of people got really hostile with me because they were young and they came up with the concept of, hey, let's make Ronald Donald fat or let's do The Last Supper with all these cartoon icons or whatever. And they would do it and they would be super happy. And then, you know, their friends would go like, oh, you're into Ron English. And they're like, I don't know who that is. And they honestly don't know who it is. Of course. They've done the same piece. And then, yeah, so one guy was so furious with me. He says, well, well, when did you do this piece? You know, and it's like, well, you done it. You did it in 2008. I did it in, uh, you know, in the 80s. And it's like, oh. Oh, well, that doesn't count because that's before the internet. <laughs> Nothing counts before the internet. <laughs> so my piece was invalid because I created it before the, before, of the before internet. Before they had so, a chance yeah. to. Yeah, you you got to imagine how many people are, are, are in pre-internet isolated bubbles creating. There, there might be a Ron English doppelganger out there who was creating the same stuff in the 80s, but no one ever saw it because yeah, right. they gave up or they moved on or... Uh, yeah, how do you how do you break through the white noise? Yeah, how did you break through the white noise? Well, I mean, I I went and put my stuff on billboard. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, you still you so know, you act every, out. Yeah. So kids, act out and commit vandalism, and you'll <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I I I've committed over two thousand second degree felonies. You know, <laughs> so I mean, it's hard to tell young kids. It's like I don't know, just just you know, most great fortunes are created by like criminals and then the next generation they don't maybe have to be a criminal but if you look back yeah i mean trump's fortune his dad was a bit of a criminal yeah uh, kennedy's their dad was a criminal i mean that's not the kennedy's okay maybe not no the i'm joking i'm joking it was definitely the kennedy's he was a bootlegger it's fine yeah, yeah. uh yeah i mean we are our, our criminality we uh we used to crack open uh telephone exchange boxes and plug into them with uh stolen uh, uh linemen's handsets and just call random countries and jack up people's phone bills not really as creative as uh creatively tagging a uh oh, what was the other thing we did we also took uh radio shack tone dialers and we took out one crystal and put in another crystal and it emulated the sound of a quarter so when you dialed a number it would say please insert 50 cents you go and the phone would be tricked into thinking that 50 cents was put in wow. again not as creative as 
creatively tagging a billboard. But yeah, we've all got a little yeah. bit of criminal and, in and us. But the interesting thing with me is I never made t- money off of being a criminal. Most people are criminals to benefit themselves financially. You know, they'll rob somebody's house because they want the stuff to sell so they can buy some crack or whatever they do with the money. But I never, I always just lost money off being a criminal. So I wasn't even a good criminal. <laughs> I wasn't a good capitalist. You, know? you were, yeah, yeah. Capitalist and criminal. There's a, there's a, Actually, not fine line. It's pretty much the but same actually, thing. But um, actually, got a job for the billboard company in the uh, mid-'80s, and I brought them my portfolio of, of billboards that I'd repainted, that I'd stolen. But I just took it. It was from another company. So, oh, yeah, I used to work for Foster Kleiser. Maybe I could work for you guys. And like, oh, yeah, you're really good at realism. We don't do a lot of realism. We do a lot of just cutting letters. You might be frustrated, but uh, you're hired. <laughs> you know? But I used the portfolio of your Of your job, stolen yeah. billboards. <laughs> and then, then I used their shop to create my billboards going on to go on bed. competitors yeah. billboards. Well, why did I want to work there? It's cuz they had like unlimited paint. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean it's sort of like yeah, why why do I want to sleep sweep the floor at the music studio? Right. Well, cuz I want to use the recording equipment at night after everyone's gone home. I yeah, think that's exactly. I think that's a pretty good uh modus operandi. Yeah, yeah but why did Shepard Ferry get a job at Kinkos, you know? It's like so Did Shepard Ferry work at Kinkos? I don't know if he did. Uh, I do remember like a funny thing that um this is great, by the way. I'm the loving days, this. I used to go into Kinko's and like, and they, and they they would just they would, I would rack up a bill and then they would just go, "You don't pay, bye," you know. And it's like it was their way. It was kind of like that movie Fight Club where a lot of people were helping them just sort of quietly look, you know. And one guy even said, "Look, I, I, I can't get involved in the kind of stuff you do, but um, you know, if I can help like by this way or that way, you know, quietly, I'll do it." Yeah. The greatest one was a little secret fraternity. The greatest one was I was doing all these anti smoking billboards, mostly uh, against camel cigarettes, because they they had kind of come up with a cartoon character because they realized, you know, that they'd lost the youth market. Um, they were considered old man cigarettes. So they, they first they made a young camel man, and that didn't work. And then they made a cartoon, and I think that might have been working. So I was doing a lot of – I was making fun of those billboards a lot by having to be a little baby with a pacifier in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And then one day I get a call from them. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, um, what's going on? Are they trying to buy me off? Because they say, well, you know, we'll give you like 100 grand or X amount of money to do all these billboards for us and, you know, and, and make these public appearances for us or whatever. And um, I didn't understand what's going on. I thought maybe they're just trying to, like, this is our quiet way to shut you up, you know. And I didn't know what to do. So my wife just says, well, take their money and use it to do your billboards. And um, for it, it, it was a while into it, and they did. It turned out they didn't know who I was. Um, that they knew I was a downtown celebrity in Manhattan because I do parties and stuff. Because they also got like Christopher Mako's and stuff. I did a few of their billboards, but I put these Trump Lloyd things in them. Eventually, they stood underneath one underneath one of the billboards, saw all the skulls, and then fired me. And but it turned <laughs> out like that the person that brought me in from Chai Day um, knew exactly who I was, and he said, "Look, I'm a." And later I talked to him and I said, what, what happened back then? And he goes, look, I was a 40-year-old uh, gay man with a, um, with, a, with a condo bill trying to make it. And I'm, this is, I have this great job. And it's like, I don't want to sell cigarettes to kids. I didn't want to sell cigarettes to kids. Um, but, you know, I just I couldn't let all this go. You know, I didn't have any backup plan. So when the, they gave me that assignment, I said, I'm just going to bring this guy Ron English in and he's going to screw it up. He's going to. He's gonna make some kind of statement, and that's so. I knew who you were, and I brought you in because I was hoping you would do something like you did. Wow, wow, so interesting. So it was another like one of those Fight Club moments where there's somebody on the inside sort of helping you, you know? right? And that's sort of eye-opening because you know you have people who 
work for the Koch brothers, you know, and work for, well, I think if you work for the Trump administration, you're just a terrible human. But there are probably good people, not in the Trump administration, but there are probably good people who work at these major borderline, they're not evil, they're just... Well, you've worked Willfully, really hard to get a job and yeah. you're scared and like, what, how am I going to get another job? I'm already this old. I'm not employable anymore. Um, you know, like when I was first working here, we were selling something else or, you know, it was, it was exciting in a different way. I mean, I have a good friend that, that did. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Did that. He made camel ads. And I said, what did you think when you were doing that? And he goes, I, I didn't think a thing about it. And, and he did say, uh, sometimes people walked off the job, says, I'm not selling cigarettes to kids or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he just thought, well, that's weird. Huh. Well, I'll just get somebody else. But I mean, he never thought about it for a minute. Now he's a political activist, so I think it finally hit him. Right, right, right. And so, yeah, I guess people, some people will grow up and uh, fig- or some people will figure it out. Or you some- just don't think about it. You just yeah. think, you know, hey, the- you know, because you think like if, if you told an actor you're going to do a Coke commercial, they're not going to say, I'm going to sell sugar water to like my federal citizens and she sh- try to get them diabetes. And, you know, that's that's not good for you. They're not going to think that at all. Like I think Coke is a big product. That's a big opportunity. Yeah. Me. You know, I am absolutely I am so happy. I'm calling my mom right now. Yeah. I'm on my way. Yeah. And, and I, don't, I don't think anyone th- would think that deep into Coke either. Like, yeah, they think if, if someone says, oh, be a spokesperson for the soda industry, you'd be like, ooh, soda bad. Be a spokesperson for Coke. Coke, that's yeah. the fun one, right? It's yeah. It's a big brand. I'm yeah. going to be a big actor. It's, it's bright like, and it's red and everyone's smiling all the time. All the yeah. will see me on the Coke commercial. Man. And they'll be like, I want the guy from the Coke commercial. Yeah, I, I could I could see that. No, but it's it, humans like to be associated into some tribe. And if a, a brands are often tribes. And they, you, they why do people wear like Tommy Hilfiger? Why did they used to? It's like they're, they're associating with a tribe. Yeah. It's a make-believe tribe. But, you know, somebody's taking advantage of that. I, safe, I, you know? I love cars. But every so often I'm going, why do I have a car that gets literally 15 miles per gallon? Because look at the car. It's awesome. It's fast. It's cool. I love it. But also it gets 15 miles per gallon. So I constant, I, I, there's a cognitive dissonance in there where you have to squelch that yeah. voice that's telling you that what you're doing is bad, but it's so good. I was doing this. Uh, I want to do this billboard that made fun of a Hummer, right? 
um, you know, so it it uh, it said Jesus drove an SUV, Muhammad pumped his gas or whatever, and <laughs> you know, it had a. But 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 I was so again. I'm at Kinko's, like trying to blow up pictures of the Hummers, to, you know, to get a nice picture of the Hummer, and then, you know, the woman behind the counter, and she was kind of cute, and she was like, "Oh my God, it's like, is that your Hummer?" And she was ready to like marry me right then, you know, because <laughs> she was so impressed that like this is a real man with a Hummer, and, and you know that's why you want a Hummer because everybody's gonna think you're really cool, you know. It, it was the. Uh, do you remember the early 80s movie? I think it was with uh, Michael Keaton hires crazy people to, or was it Dudley Moore? They hired crazy people to run, I think it was called Crazy People, to run the ad agency. And it was like, oh, you, you got to revisit this. Actually, this is well up your alley because it's uh, an insane asylum starts writing the ad copy, right? And one of them's like, Jaguar. That woman will sleep with you now and stuff like that. Like, like yeah. uh, you're sort of you're hitting the nail on the head with that sort of like this is how this is how blatant we're getting manipulated. I'm going to show you. You, you. you don't even have to reveal the curtain. You just sort of turn on the light switch like and then the cockroaches scatter. That's sort of what you're doing with your art, which is awesome. Well, and I think in the end, the, the Hummer went out of style because, you know, first people thought you were super cool. If you had a Hummer, and then later when they realized it got four miles a gallon, that, that that once they got laughed at, that was not the result they wanted from having a Hummer. They wanted people to think they're like awesome, you know, they're adventure man. And but when when it, when when the society kind of turned on the Hummer and, and started making fun of it, then that's when everybody sort of got rid of their Hummers really quick, you know. Hitler's favorite actor was Charlie Chaplin, and then Charlie Chaplin made the Great Dictator, and which you know has that iconic scene of. Charlie Chaplin as Hitler bouncing the ball of the globe and stuff like that and then giving that impassioned speech at the end and uh, Hitler shut down that portion of Charlie Chaplin and still maintained that he loved Charlie Chaplin even though he made a movie explicitly mocking him so mocking those in power like your little Donald Trump Richie Rich is great I hope he knows that exists. Um, you know, his uh, financial advisor guy or whatever came to one of my shows and took a big stack of the money. We had, like, Donald Trump money. Yeah. Um, it was, like, negative money, but whatever. But, yeah, so I, I don't know if he knows or not. I've met him before, but uh, I I don't know. I don't know what he knows <laughs> and what he doesn't know. You know what? He's probably so unself-aware, he'd probably love it. He'd probably be like, they're doing me as Richie but, but Rich. I, I met that unaware too because if he started calling me out like on his twitter like what a joke artist he is blah 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 nobody likes his art whatever <laughs> like, oh my god oh my god oh that <laughs> happened to my friend she was like ron you know this is going into election please quit making fun of him you're making him bigger it's kind of having the opposite effect of, of you know of, of your intention you know and then then a week later he called her out and then she was all over oh trump 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 i thought we weren't talking about him because we were just making him bigger by talking about him it's like yeah but he called me out <laughs> <laughs> is, that's the new he was so petty that he called out some you know la artist that's the know, new street yeah. cred yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, needle and so i'm sure that you know if if charlie chaplin had made that same movie about him he would say got another movie about me yeah 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 uh, yeah, yeah probably and he's uh, not wrong you know we we we've we've dropped the ball by um, oh, not crap, knowing right. what to do at that moment. With Obama, we knew what to do. You know, we, we promoted him. Like, I think they, he, he, the campaign actually tapped like eight artists to work on this, you know, some stuff. And then, right. and, and then a whole bunch of other street artists joined in, and it became a movement of, you know, putting Obama everywhere, and it made him seem like the de facto winner. And, and then people felt comfortable voting for him, or whatever happened, it worked, you know. Was that a concerted effort? Yeah. It was. Yeah, it was a concerted effort, but he was not. Um, 
you know, he was pretty hands off. I mean, they, they picked the first eight artists and then they sort of let it do its own thing. And he didn't really, they didn't, they kind of towards the end, they said, uh, please, if you would just stay more positive, you know, we're in the home stretch here. And they're like, yeah, they're calling you terrorists. It's like, you, I think the po- time for positivity is over. It's time to attack back. You know? Right, right, right. They're like, seriously, if you would just stay positive you know, keep it positive. Don't make fun of the other candidates or, you know, the other candidate. But yeah, they, they were right, but we were, you know, it didn't seem right. But, you know, at the same time, he, for the most part, he just sort of let us alone to do what we wanted to do. You know, like what candidate would not want, would let cease that kind of control, you know? Right. But he did uh, amongst... remind me of Lincoln because mine was like half Lincoln, half Obama. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You guys should and, definitely and look Lincoln that up. kind of did the same thing. He goes, well, you know, he used to set aside time every day so people could come photograph him so that they could profit off of him they could make a painting of him or they could make an etching of him or whatever they wanted to do but he said look if if i'm hanging on people's walls then they're going to vote for me you know and it it's just it's just works that way you know and then then suddenly with with trump you know first we called the you know the hillary campaign and said let's get you know the same crew together and and if we if we start coming out for i'm sure a lot of the other street artists will start coming out for him we'll have a whole street art campaign for her and they were like we know who you are and and you backed the wrong person last time and yeah you, we got this we holy shit you. you know and th- then you kind of like obviously she would have been a better choice but then you know you're still human and you feel like she just dissed us you know and 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 she was so rude to us and and, and you shouldn't think that you should think whoever's going to have the best policies for America but we're, you know you really do fall into that kind of like yeah. personal and so I, we just sort of or well, at least I decided well then I'm just going to make fun of Donald Trump I'm not going to help you you know the, yeah you're right they that that's the mechanism was petty yeah. The 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 mechanism of the campaign apparatus was petty. They're like, oh yeah, we remember you from last campaign. Yeah, well, that was well, he was a better choice. Than and you also, it was a, a better choice. Than Trump yeah, exactly. Than Trump. This yeah, is yeah, not yeah. A, it's not a zero sum game. You know, yeah. we can there's there's shades of gray right here, dumbass. But I'm embarrassed that I was that petty. You know, and but uh, you know, but we worked really hard for Bernie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then they sort of threw him under the bus. <laughs> And the, the irony is, like, I know a lot of people that, that, you know, especially a lot of people from my hometown and stuff are into Trump, like, big time, you know. And uh, But I, I said, would you have voted for Bernie? He says, yeah, we liked him better. Wait, what? <laughs> I, I, no. They wanted to throw a bomb in the, you know, in the room. Uh, you know? Yeah. They wanted to blow they, the, the so, horrible system that they feel left behind. So they, they, either one would, oh, wow. Well, also, he's really, he's a genius. The guy's, I'm just slack-jawed at I've never seen, I mean, somebody so smart about, well, we know his old producer. And I said, is he a genius? And she looked at me like puzzled, like, are you kidding me? And then she thought for a minute, she goes, oh. Yeah. At, at, at manipulating the media, he is the smartest man on planet Earth. Yeah, Nobody absolutely. Nobody understands the media better. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. like, it, you know, like, I, for me, it's interesting seeing the other side of it. It's like, well, here's a person that, that's bought into it. What is it about him you like? It's like, look, Ron, he, he's, he's. The imagery he created is brilliant. He came down from heaven. Now, what, what, what did he come down from? I, he came down from a penthouse. He came down from the, the gold escalator. Light. He yeah. shits in a fucking golden toilet. <laughs> yeah. He screws whoever he wants. He does whatever he wants. He's untouchable. And, and then he came down into the muck that is our lives. And, man, people have been mean to him ever since. They spit on him. They yell at him. They make fun of him. He, he came down. He, he descended from the perfect life to save us. And you know what, Ron? He doesn't even take a salary. That's how in it for us he is. And oh then you my just God. spit on him, man. There is spit on him. There, and it's like it's, wow. oh my God, it's like biblical, you know. There is there there is and a, it's hard to explain to him. It's like, no, he's actually making shit tons of money off the presidency, but uh 
you know, I think that's that maybe people don't understand how he does that. That or, that is one of the most that was one of the best insights into the other half on how they would. I never even looked at it that way because, you know, we're New Yorkers. I'm like, yeah, it came down from a shitty glass penthouse in fucking Fifth Avenue. Who cares? Yeah. That's that. Who wants that life in the first place? I'd come down from that life too. Yeah. No, but I, he knew what he was doing, and 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 I was a little puzzled at first. I mean, I knew he was going to win, but um, because he had this kind of hold on the Midwest and all these people that I used to know. But you know, just the optics of it, it's like he's been running for president his whole life. He why why would a guy like him go to pro wrestling? Because that's where the fans, that's his base. He got to him. He went to, to their thing. He brought the famous biker guy with the biker show up there and brought him to the lobby and let him put one of his motorcycles in the lobby for the guy's TV show. The guy had. Oh, uh, but, yeah. But, but he he reached out to all the right people and did the right things and showed them the right respect and for the past and also like forty you know, years. Yeah, and and then. You know, people aren't, you know, we think, oh, we got him. And, you know, he's, he's grabbing the pussies or whatever he's doing. It's like, but what they're hearing is he's David Lee Roth. He's a rock star. He does whatever he wants. You know, it's like, he's the guy I want to be. They're not, they're not thinking he's a gross guy. I wouldn't want my daughter in the room with him. That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking, oh my God, this just, he tells it like, he's a rock star. He just tells it like it is, do whatever he wants. He's the guy they want to be. And and I don't think a lot of uh, liberals saw that coming, you know? God damn it. Like, just leave it alone. Now, you know? now, now I, now I sort of. Nope, nope. I, I, I just went to a dark place. I'm oh, coming I'm out of it. Sorry. I'm but, coming out of it. Well, you know they're going to lose again, right? <laughs> Prob- he's going to do a landslide. Probably. Oh, Jesus Christ. Old retributions or what? What is it? Is it? Am I saying it right? Ret- the, the the big issue now is like retributions or what? Retru- Fuck, I don't oh, know. Reparations? Reparations. Reparations, sorry. yeah. Reparations. reparations. That, they're hearing retributions. Oh, oh no, no, no. There, yeah. there will be retributions. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> For those who don't win, there will be retributions. But there's uh, a lot of ways that they could win easily. He's the easiest guy in the world to beat. You know, it's just they don't want to play it the right way, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Maybe everybody's benefiting so much that they just think, well, let's just let it roll for four more years and see what happens. Uh, then the total collapse of society. Uh, when, when it happens, I will be shored up in the... In the fortress English on the hills of Beacon, I'll man the machine gun nests. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we'll be run out of the country. <laughs> I'm trying to make a lot of friends in Canada. Yeah. Everywhere I go, I'm, I actually think that. <laughs> I could be really nice to these people because I may be like, you know, on their doorstep going, please. I heard. I heard sw- it's not that hard. To immig- it's not that easy to immigrate anywhere, really. No, it isn't. Yeah. It isn't. I think that's a myth that Americans have that we're great Americans. Anybody would take us. Like, no, no, they no, won't. no, they won't. No, they won't. <laughs> China really hates us now. I'm getting really scared over there you know do what do you do you uh run afoul of the chinese censors no 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 I'm, but i'm pretty careful yeah yeah um this, this is my country the reason i love this country is because we 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 have this kind of dialogue i mean i think you achieve greatness through criticism you know i mean i'm in the art world we just tore each other apart you know but we all became better artists so we weren't trying to really tear each other apart we were just like raising the bar you know, and I think criticism just raises the bar. And like, if, if somebody doesn't want to have, you know, a, a critical aspect to their culture, then their culture is going to atrophy. You know, so I I love here, and you know, I love it's the way it is. And and but I've I've never really much went. I mean, I have a little bit, but I haven't really went into a lot of other cultures and and wreaked havoc in their cultures because I feel like I'm that's part of being American. It's just supposed to be critical of your country, and you know. But also, you have to speak the. Language, not literally the language, yeah. but I mean, the I language. Got, I got into some trouble. I, I, I think I made fun of Theo Van Gogh once, um, you know, after he got stabbed. Well, I think they were, I thought, you guys are making too big a deal of this. This is not your 9-11. They stabbed one guy. 
you know, it's not the same thing. Um, I probably shouldn't have been saying stuff like that. In my defense, um, I was on live TV drunk. <laughs> okay, now how does that happen? How does that happen? Okay, so I'm having an art opening. It's go, It goes great. Kind of a weird afternoon because a lot of people had their fingers cut off. And it, you know, it took me a while to realize, oh, shit, they're on the mafia and they cut their fingers off. But they were buying the paintings and it's all gone great. And at the end of the opening. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just gloss over fingers cut off mafia guys buying your paintings. Oh, my, my mother-in-law had come to the opening. It was in Amsterdam. And then she was going like, why does nobody have fingers? <laughs> you know, they think they're all mobsters. Um, but they had disposable income. And so I was pretty happy. Disposable fingers, apparently, too. <laughs> yeah, well, if you don't pay, you lose a finger. But, uh, but I paid. But, um, <laughs> no, but at the end, I had just done an a, a, a ad for um, Absinthe, which is a fake absinthe. Um, and so the dealer says, I've got a bunch of the real absinthe, and I've got these five different bottles, and they're really good. And, and you know, the opening's over. Everybody's gone. You're just going back across the street to the hotel and going to sleep now. Would you like to sample the real stuff? So I did, like, five shots of different kinds of absinthe. Yep. And then as soon as it's over, then he goes – Okay, well, we get we need to jump in the car now because you're on live TV in 20 minutes. What? <laughs> so didn't Five that. shots and in. That's how I ended up like being kind of drunk on TV. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember being in the hall just before I we went in, like chugging beers, trying to like sober up. Wait, you chugged the beers to sober up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't been drunk they, on they, TV, yeah. but I've been. Uh, I've definitely been like had like a 5 a.m. call time on uh, some certain shows before and I'd been out the night before and then I would get home around like 1 32 and I'd be like well looks like I'm just staying up so <laughs> yeah. uh so I'd like coast through it have no idea what I was talking about not because I was drunk but just because it was exhausted uh -huh. and then you know they'd have the car to send me back home and I'd fall asleep immediately in that car and then everyone would text and tweet me be like oh you were great on tv this morning I'm like I was on tv this morning oh my god that was this morning because it felt like so long removed well, maybe like a shot of it adrenaline went through you and sobered you up for the 15 minutes I, you're on TV I, I think that probably did it that was probably what I, did I remember it. I blacked out once on TV not, not from being drunk just from being scared you know and then afterwards I was like oh my god what what, what, did, I what say? did I say what did I do and then you watch it goes oh that was funny okay <laughs> thank God. Thank, thank I, it's nerve-wracking to be on TV right if you're not used yeah, to it no and unfortunately it's not for it's me not. it's Damn, it's you don't it's, get a hangover you don't no it's it's bizarrely natural for me it's like it's it doesn't even phase me. I, I don't even notice the cameras or the lights. I just notice the person I'm talking to. Um, so you don't look in the audience and see every person you've ever known. No, I see no. I see nothing. I see blank space. But you know, I grew up, you know, uh, playing in orchestras and you know stuff like that. So like I've sort of, in a way, always been on stage. I mean, being in an orchestra playing Twinkle Twinkle at age four is a little bit different than being on Good Morning America. But there's some something translatable to that. Like you know. I, I, you know, I did sales. I worked as a barista. I worked at, so like everything's sort of a stage for me. Like mm. that's my performance, mm. which is me being like happy go lucky. Even though deep down inside, I'm a very dark human being. I'm just kidding. I'm I love myself. Um, it, it, but that's that's the performative aspect for huh. me. That just was totally natural. Um, yeah, you know? some people have that. And some people don't. Yeah, and, and I think you know, and and when you first came over, you were talking about interviewing artists, and sometimes they don't have a lot to say or yeah or they don't know how to talk about their work and and i think it's because it most of them come from a place of being shy and that that's why they they will gravitate to art because it's something you, it's a very lonely sport you you know 
you know, I'm, I'm famous for about three hours a year, and the rest of the time I'm just in my little studio all by myself, you know, so it's, it's a very isolated life, you know, and yeah, it's interesting. I had a friend who was very charismatic, kind of like yourself, and, but he was, uh, he was also a really good painter, and, and he wanted to be a painter, but he, c- he could see he was driving him crazy. It was driving him crazy because you have to spend so many lonely hours, and he didn't want to be alone. He wanted to be with people, and uh, finally, he solved his problem by becoming an art dealer. So now his name's like on the gallery. And um, there but the thing is, now there he's you go. involved in art. He doesn't have to physically sit there and, and hand make all the paintings, but you know, it, it's kind of his art is, is putting together all these artists and curating artists into like shows and stuff. But uh, now he's super happy because that's where he, he wants to be, where the action is. Right. Know? Right. But a shy person would think, oh my god, that that's the hardest part is you know trying to sell this stuff. You know, making it, oh, that's fun. I can't wait. But, you know, when you throw me out in public, then it's, I'm terrified, you know. And I'm a bit like that. You know, it's like I, I've i done a lot of press because it, that helps sell the paintings. And I always feel like all this stuff is just buying me more time in the studio, you know. Ah, that's a way to look at it. Yeah, you're sort of reverse engineering your, this is, this is, the, this is the poison pill I have to take before I get the sugar. Yeah, or, you know, I think that a lot of artists don't realize that, you know, people don't know that much about art and that you do have to kind of sell it. And, and if they have questions, you should answer them, you know, and you should be, well, you know, I, I like bands like Kiss. I mean, they're not, maybe they're not the greatest band, but they're grateful. You know, it's like, what's your favorite song? Oh, rock and roll all night. Why? Because it sold the most and it keeps me on that stage where I want to be, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know? Was it uh, was it Metallica when they came out with sort of a more poppier, I think it was the Black Album, which is 1990, 1991 or something like that. And they're like, uh, what do you what do you say to your old metal fans who say you've sold out? And one of them, probably Lars, goes, yeah, we sell out every fucking stadium we play <laughs> like you know <laughs> yeah. there's 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 no shame in like oh i i used to love them when they were the tiny little indie well you know what they didn't love being the tiny little indie they liked having you know they liked having the mansion and the hummer and the uh and actually the meals and the mortgage you know because and the job security so yeah there's a lot of the, if your band doesn't make it and if you don't get like three hits or whatever the magic number is then you're going to be selling cars, you know, which is nothing against selling cars, but it's like, if but if you wanted to, star, yeah, you got to have hit songs. And yeah. That's why Gene Simmons is like, you know, that I love that song. Cause it's so, you know, that cake that keeps us in the game. You know? Ron, what's your rock and roll all night? What's, what's, what's the, um, what's the reprint or the series or the limited series that keeps, that's the hit that keeps your lights on. Well, uh, Guernica, um, almost every show, like I did the one show because, the guy had just opened in a new gallery, and he wanted he needed a really successful show to kind of launch his new gallery mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, so it's kind of a thing. It's like I want a Ron English Guernica. I want a, a Julian's novel plate painting. I want a Damien Hirst shark. Well, you know, Damien Hirst has made a lot of stuff. Yeah, but I want a shark. <laughs> yeah, but you can only get a tiny shark. I don't care. I, don't care. <laughs> I want the shark. Yeah, I want the shark. <laughs> so, yeah, so so but people want the Maryland, people want the Guernica. Maryland with Mickey's was a yep. huge hit. Um, you know, I had to kind of stop myself from painting that because at some point you could just do Maryland with Mickey shows, you know. But yeah, I th- I, I've always looked at this as like a music career where, yeah, you have to do a little bit of crowd pleasing. You know, you have to make sure there's stuff in the show that's absolutely going to sell. You know, you, it takes people a while to simulate your new ideas. So like if you just did a, a show of everything's brand new, it's just, they can't handle it. Right. You know, you got to play years later. They'll be like, I want that stuff. You, you know? got to play satisfaction and paint it black. Y- yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you got to be grateful that you have that stupid song, you know. That song keeps you in business, you know. Yeah, that's refreshing. Uh, when so when people ask for a new Ron English Guernica, uh, well, what what happened with that is is um, you know at first it was 
I, I like I, I did a Guernica, right? And then I was happy. That's what I wanted to do. And then I thought of another idea with it. So I did that. And then one, I kind of thought of three ideas and they were very similar. And I thought, well, I should got to pick one and do that. And then I did all three just because I, I want to see what they all look like done. And, and then at some point it became like a challenge. I thought, well, what would it look like from the airplane's point of view? Because they're kind of weird flat characters. What would they look like? What would it look like if it was an x-ray? You could see through them. You could see all the weird Picasso skeletons. So then it, then it became a challenge. You know, and I think when, once I crossed 100, it was like, you know, how many ways can I do this before I'm, I'm burnt, you know? But now it's more of a challenge for me to see how many ways I can do it. And actually, before you came, I was sketching out a new thing and doing, like, behind the walls and what's going on behind the walls. And do you ever... Uh you're like halfway through and you're like, why is this so, oh, I've done this one before. <laughs> yeah, I played this one. <laughs> but the challenge is to make it different every like, time. You speaking know? things of wisdom. No, really? Oh, let's let it be. I did let it be again. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's, it, what's it take to uh, commission a Ron English? Money. <laughs> 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 there, there, there we go. But I'm, uh, I'm also like weird because I, I do commercial stuff sometimes. I, I'm not opposed to it. I, I like the challenge. Um, interestingly, with me, like what you talk about is some of my greatest hits. Like one of them was um, the, I have these two ladies, and they're they're kind of like one's on top of the other. But when you look at them from the right angle, they're the Rolling Stones tongue, you know. And that was an image I actually made because the the um, uh, Jason Flom asked me to do it when he still worked with Mick. But I didn't come up with it right away. It took me about eight months to come up with the image because he goes, do, he just said, do something with the tongue so I could show it to Mick. And um, so by the time I came up with it, I think he'd already left the label and Mick had left the label and he couldn't even talk to Mick anymore. And, but that, that painting existed and became a big hit, you know. But it became the hit because I wouldn't have just came up with it on my own. I was challenged to come up with something. They, he said, come up with something completely different with a tongue that nobody's ever thought of. You know, so it, it, it was issued to me as a challenge. And sometimes that works for me. Like the, the zipper banana was for the dandy warhols and they said i said you know i was going to do their album cover and they i said well give me some some something to go on and they said well we like uh the velvet underground and we like andy warhol obviously because of our name and so then it just inst instantly appeared in my head you just take the the banana and then the zipper from the sticky uh, fingers sticky fingers and, yeah, and you put you, them together and there you go, so and there you go. Banana, yeah you got the work rate you know? <laughs> but i mean it i wouldn't have came up with that had they not tasked me to you know do that you know so i find getting challenges and taking on challenges and sometimes it's a commission you know or or sometimes it's maybe some commercial thing but it it, it opens me up to new ideas where i don't just stay locked in my same realm and if you do stay locked in and it's just like i want to do something right now blank blank sketch where 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 do you start? Well, every day I wake up with different ideas, you know, and I, I jot them all down. So I have like thousands of ideas I'll never get to do. So these I just pick one and say, okay, I want to see see that one come to fruition, you know. See if it flies. Or just I want to see what it looks like, you know, finished. I want to get it out of my brain. and I'm there. Oh, you're you're curious. I'm like, yeah. oh, I, is, yeah. is this going to work? Well, it's kind of like your dreams. It's like, well, tell me about your dream. It was kind of foggy and weird. But, I mean, there was definitely stuff in there. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Like sometimes you actually just dream something. Yeah, I'd have, I had a funny dream and I was in a museum and I saw a painting and and I thought, that's really a clever idea. Man, I wish I would have thought of that idea. And I, I kind of didn't like that artist because it's like, damn, I should have thought of that idea. That's it's so easy. I should have thought of that idea. And I woke up and I was kind of angry because, you know, I, it was in the that dream. That should have been my idea. You right. Know? It's like, I got to come up with an idea like that. And it took me like about five minutes to realize it's like, that artist doesn't exist. It, that it artist was, exists inside your head. It was your he idea. Made that painting and it, 
I mean, but I still feel like I was stealing the idea because I was stealing it from this artist in my head. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, an interesting thing is where do ideas come from, you know? And I don't understand the human brain that well, but like one of my friends has written hit songs and, and she goes, you know, I've actually never written a hit song. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, I write songs every day. I channel the hits. And I understood exactly what she was talking about. It's coming from somewhere else, and you're just the v- vehicle for it. You know, oh yeah. Vessel, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. When I when I was writing music, because I I have a classical music degree, and I wrote like you know singer songwriter songs. I was in the village with a harmonica, and yeah, and girls don't like me. Guess where that went? Nowhere. They started laughing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my friend wrote this whole album about how girls hated him, and I'm like, now you got a girlfriend. So is your career over? And it was. It was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, no, I. I'd be sitting there with my guitar and like you just vomit out the song fully formed like Athena sprung from Zeus's head like everything was there the melody was there the harmonica was there the chords were there and then the words just came and you're like did I just write what I think in my for my skill set is or skill level a pretty damn good song in 34 seconds like i wrote the song faster than the actual existence of the song is uh i I, so i I get that i get that at least with the musical and it seems like the greatest stuff comes that easy yeah and the rest of stuff is just work you know right right like you know mozart just went there's a symphony right beethoven's mozart's manuscripts are perfect you look at them there's not everything is perfect beethoven's manuscripts erase Ink blotted out, stains on it. Well, you probably know this because um, they asked Einstein, like, how did you come up with the theory of relativity? And he more or less said, and I'm badly paraphrasing, but he more or less said, well, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think he put all that information in his head, and then it sort of probably came at its own time. Right, 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 right. It was there ready to be plucked from the ether. All the building blocks were there. He yeah. said something. he had to prime his brain to have that thought. Yeah, yeah. He said it was... He said the answer was always there. I just had to, yeah, think Take a about. Shower. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty, pretty much, pretty much. That's it's so fascinating how these three, you know, in 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 fact, any discipline like that genesis of the idea, where does it come from, and how it manifests itself in different disciplines, and how it manifests itself in different personalities, like those who have to struggle to work at it, and those who have the bolts of lightning. Uh, and I guess the key to success in almost any creative endeavor is balancing the two, like Mm -hmm. harnessing the bolt of lightning, but then refining and crafting it. Because if you don't, you won't have the next bolt of lightning. It won't be just there ready to be thought of. Right. Now, um, I do a lot of music and, but I don't know how to play any instrument except drums. Um, but I was talking to my friend. I was very frustrated. I say, I hear all these great songs in my head. And he goes, who cares? If you can't get them out, who cares? You know, and, th- and th- that's when I learned how to work with musicians and, you know, and, and, and make things happen. And so whatever was in my head now exists, you know. And it was interesting for me because, again, you know, like with my painting and stuff, it's very hands-on. It's, it, it's, 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 a, it's a different approach. But like Jeff Koons doesn't touch anything. No. No, but um, – Th- those giant balloon dogs would not just magically exist without his. You, it, you take everybody in the equation that worked on that. Yep. And you you, you could take you could pull out any one of those people, a- except Jeff. 
you know, he's the one driving force. If, yes. if he's gone, those balloon animals cease to exist. Maybe if the guy that sanded him, if you pull him out, or if you pull out one of the studios that worked on it, then he just would go to another studio. But but they exist because of him. And it's interesting because he takes the exact opposite approach that I do. You know, it's not like hands-on. And every little smudge isn't his. So um, I thought, well, if I'm going to do music, I'm going to approach it that way. So And, and I'm not even going to learn an instrument because I'm going to use other people the way he uses other people. So I'm going to approach music the way he approaches art. I understand. Yeah. I mean, that's how some modern composers operate. The, you know, back in the day to compose, you had to be schooled in various, ideally multiple instruments. Right. But now there's modern contemporary composers whose only language is the computer. Now, therefore, because that, they can manipulate instruments mm-hmm. per how they want to without ever having touched one. Right, and they make some damn good music from it. Yeah. Uh, so I I don't see any harm in being like Jeff Koons. I mean, I'm not really a fan of Jeff Koons, but I don't see any harm in that style of art because everyone thinks the Warhol factory and the Koons factories and the Hearst factories. They're all like, it's not really art. Well, guess what? Rembrandt only painted like one third of Rembrandt's. He'd do the faces and then he'd hand it off. You yeah, know, that, that concept wasn't. It's not really, new, yeah. That, but the concept of I'm going to have a portrait studio, I'm going to make a, a portrait that's going to look like a, in a certain style, and nobody, I don't, I don't think anybody went there expecting him to paint it. You went there to get a portrait that would look a certain way, and that was his brand. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the idea of that the lone individual is like almost invented by Van Gogh, or do you know what I mean? It, yeah. It, it came later. Yeah, yeah. I know? mean, all of them, the, the, the Donatellos, right. the Da Vinci's, they all had, yeah, there was no lone, I mean- right. I mean, obviously, like their sketches and their sketchbooks. Yeah, that's their lone right. wolfness. But their their major masterpieces are done with the armies. Yes. You know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's but you a- know, to me, it's kind of like I like. You know, I'm kind of locked into what I'm doing with painting, and it, it, like if Mark Ryden, you know, got a team of people to paint those. I don't think that his career would, I think would probably fall apart pretty quickly because people kind of know that's him personally just touching every square inch of that painting and mothering it into existence. But, um, you know, like, but I also want to have the experience of being a different kind of artist, you know, and you were talking about like being in other countries or China and, and, and I, I, I act completely differently there. And I, I, I actually come at it from the other way. It's like, I try to not offend or do anything wrong or do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, became, I, I became almost the opposite person that I am here. Mm-hmm just to have that experience of what it's like not to be the rebel all the time, not to be pushing against everything, you know, not questioning everything, but, but right. Well, there's also something, well, there's also something really presumptuous assuming that you can act out in someone else's culture. That's sort of, I mean, I, I, that's, that's gauche to me, you know, Oh, I can act out in my own culture because I'm fluent in it. Right. But if I'm going to someone else's, I have no right to criticize your, you know, culture. Now, when I get back to the USA, I will criticize your culture. But I don't have any right to do it while I'm in there. I'm I'm not the insider. That's why you have your protesters and your artists to, you know, right. extrapolate the grievances, the internal grievances of your culture. I can't do that. Yeah. But no. it's also interesting to get to deal with the top people in the society and the lowest people in the society yeah. to see what everybody's thinking. Because also I always thought, in a weird way, nobody's wrong. And nobody um, self-identifies as a jerk. You know, nobody's the bad guy in their own story, in their own narrative in their head. It's like, 
you know so like if you're the president of a country and things are going wrong you you can have to deal with this in some way and it may not be you know the way that people want you to or you know but you you you're, you're given a a problem and you have to solve it a certain way and maybe you know uh, people that don't have that problem don't have to really think about how how do you deal with that do you know what i mean I don't know if I'm making any sense or not. You know, you're, saying, you're, you're making, interesting you're, if you look at you're making like too much sense. There's nobody trying to be the bad guy, you know. Uh, and, and again, except Canadians. Again, I think I'm the good guy. And the whole time that I did all those billboards, I, made, I committed uh, over a thousand felonies. So, yeah. you know, by law, I'm a bad guy. Right. But, but in your own story. I was only cigarette ads. So I was thinking, you know, I'm taking out all these cigarette ads so the kids don't see them. And maybe there's 11 ki- people that are adults now that don't smoke because of me. And that's worth that you know but again am i rationalizing or is that you know i mean i always thought it was moral but not but i wasn't always legal you know what i mean moral but not always legal correct sometimes people like the laws because you know i can be as amoral as i want as long as i don't cross out of the 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 law zone you know as long as it's tacitly legal then if then it's okay to do but is it you know Right. I can run a I can run a uh, a, a, a savings and loan fund into right. the ground because it's not legal, yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, I have a feeling that we've probably lost 97 percent of our listeners, but I don't care because I, I don't believe we ever had them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we definitely had at a certain point in time. There was a 100 uh, percent. And now we have we we've lost 97 percent of that 100 so percent. So now, now I can say what the winning lottery number. Is yes. For next week. It's okay. seven. seven. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> Seven's in there. Seven's in there. There's yeah. definitely a seven. Ron English, this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I I have the uh, the psychic telekinetic uh, feeling that we're going to have another conversation in the near future. This has been immensely entertaining. There'll be beer in the involved in the next. You know what? The next one, yeah. Let's have a, a couple beers. We have beer. Yeah, I think water. we'll yeah. I think we'll have a lot more fun. We'll have a couple <laughs> beers. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Ron English. Thank you, Ron. Oh, thank you so much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 